Amen. Well, thank you. Thank you, youth worship team. That was wonderful. Yeah, we appreciate you guys. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. You're going to find that pretty close to the end of your New Testament. Uh, And as you turn there, I want to just take a moment of silence, just be still before the Lord. Uh, Maybe you've had a scrambled week, and uh, we want to just invite him to speak to us today. So let's do that now. Lord, your word tells us to be still and know that you are God. Lord, stillness is hard for us. It feels like we're always running a mile a minute. So today, Lord, it's a privilege that we can sit and be still. But Lord, I know that even though our our bodies are here, Lord, I, I look out over this room and I'm sure that there are minds that are running a mile a minute, running over all the problems and obstacles that they are facing. Uh, Lord, some of the stresses, Lord, there are health stresses and financial stresses and relational stresses. And Lord, there are, uh, there are a thousand things that each one of us could be thinking about right now. But you tell us not to be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication to let our requests be made known to God. And the peace which surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. So Lord, I, we just pray collectively that you would, we ask you to help us to lay all of that down. And would you give us that peace that guards our hearts and our minds? And Lord, we're coming to your word today expecting to hear from you. Lord, your word goes forth and it never returns void. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So God, we're here to hear from you. And I pray for your help. So Spirit, guide me as I speak and direct us as we listen. We can't do anything here today apart from your help. Um, So please help, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. First Timothy chapter 6. If you were with us last week, then you know uh, Pastor Matt Stanton from Cornerstone came and preached. He actually preached on verses 3 to 10. And a few of you messaged me and said, what's going on here? We skipped verses 1 to 2. That seems a little fishy. I just read through verses 1 to 2, and I can see why you skipped verses 1 to 2. I promise you that's not what we were doing. I, uh, we'd planned that calendar out in advance, and I made some changes. And when I realized what had happened, I didn't think it was appropriate to send that curveball to Pastor Matt a week in advance, uh, which will come to light as we read verses 1 to 2. That just didn't seem like the right move. I will say, however, as we turn to this text and we read verses 1 to 2, and we preach through verses 1 to 2, I want you to hear today, Christians, that you need to know why these verses are in your Bible. You need to understand why it is that God, in His infinite wisdom, put this in His Word. And the reality is that oftentimes in our personal Bible reading, Verses 1 to 2 of 1 Timothy chapter 6 are the kind of verses that we skim past. We flick through and, and just we don't want to think about what's, what's going on here. But I want to assure you this morning that there's something beautiful happening in these verses, and it's something that we need to hear today. These are practical instructions, if I could just remind you. Practical instructions from the Apostle Paul to his young protege, Timothy. Timothy is, is leading this church in Ephesus. And right now we're in a, a particularly practical section of the letter where Paul's addressing problems that Timothy is facing. And he's giving direction to this young leader. And the challenge that Timothy's facing in the verses here is, is the challenge of having a church that is filled with slaves. Timothy was leading a church that was made up predominantly, we think, of slaves. One commentator notes, it's claimed that half the population of the Roman Empire in the first century was composed of slaves. 50% of the population, and that's just in the empire, but in the church that percentage would have been even higher. 
Because remember, the, the early church was not made up of the powerful and prestigious. It was made up of the outcasts of society. So as Timothy opened the Word of God and preached in each gathering, he would have been looking out at a church that was more than half composed of slaves. How do you lead people like that? And, and I want you to just think about this for a moment, because when you read your New Testament, this should shape your approach to the text. Have you, is this the church you envision when you read these New Testament letters? When you read the, the letter to the Philippians, and Paul talks about contentment, and calling them to be content in every circumstance, you know that letter was written to a church that was more than half made up of slaves. When he writes to the Corinthians about the need for unity in the church, how you've got to get past these differences to come together in unity, he was writing to a church that was more than half made up of slaves, that had some masters in the congregation as well. This this wasn't the bright, happy sunshine club. These are real people living in really difficult circumstances. That's the early church. And here Paul is writing to Timothy and he's saying, it's going to take wisdom to lead these people. What do you say when you look out over a congregation and you see 50% Slaves. How do you pastor a people who are living in oppression? That's what this is about. So hear now God's word to us today. We're looking to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1-2. to I hope you have that open in your Bible. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, and active word to us today. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. This is the word of the Lord. And this is a challenging passage. And so we're going to get into the specifics of Paul's instructions to Timothy in just a moment. But before we do, anytime we we come to the topic of slavery in the Bible, I think it's worth pausing for a moment to ask the question that your neighbor is asking. Your neighbor is asking the question, does the Bible promote slavery? And your neighbor is probably going to point to a passage like 1 Timothy 6, verses 1-2 to to prove their argument. Doesn't the Bible promote slavery? Right as we were kind of right in the thick of COVID when we were doing joint services still with Cornerstone, uh, we did a series called 10 Hard Questions. I don't know if you remember that. We divvied it up. Uh, This was one of the questions I got to deal with. I also got to deal with how could a good God send people to hell? Pastor Paul, I think, was trying to speed up the launch. He's like, let's see what we can... It worked. Um, We preached a sermon called uh, uh, Doesn't the Bible Promote Slavery? That was on June 28th, 2020, and you can find it on the Cornerstone website. And I would encourage you, if this is a question that you don't really have an answer for, you should go back and listen to that. Because there's a lot of, lot of information and nuance there that I won't be able to unpack in an introduction this morning. But by way of reminder, way of refresher, how do we tackle that question? Does the Bible promote slavery? The first thing I would encourage you to do, if you're having that talk with your neighbor, is you need to define your terms. Because in our culture, when someone uses the word slavery... The image that immediately comes to mind is, of course, the African slave trade of the 18th, 19th century. New world slavery is what they're envisioning. Does the Bible promote new world slavery? Well, you can tell them, absolutely not. Most certainly not. In fact, in the Old Testament, God said in Exodus 21, verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. So God's answer to the slave trade was the death sentence. 
No, God does not promote slavery. And He doesn't soften in His approach to slavery in the New Testament. In fact, if they were to flip to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1-2, to you could just say, hey, why don't we flip back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9-10, to where Paul says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Well, who are these people? What do they do? For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, listen here, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So even here in the New Testament, this idea of of enslavement, of man-stealing, is sin, and it is identified as such. Tim Keller, in his excellent book, The Reason for God, writes, the Bible unconditionally condemns kidnapping and trafficking in slaves. You should know that. Therefore, while the early church did not go on a campaign to abolish first century slavery completely, later Christians did so when faced with new world style slavery, which could not be squared in any way with biblical teaching. And so in this quote, you can see Tim Keller's distinguishing between first century slavery and new world slavery. Now, your neighbor probably hasn't drawn that distinction, so it's important that you're able to do that for them. There's a difference. And in New World slavery, the African slave trade, this man-stealing slavery, racially motivated slave, slavery, that is an abomination and it's identified as such in the Bible. In first century slavery, it was not motivated by race. It was motivated primarily by economics. Ancient slavery was, was essentially the, one of the solutions to what we would call uh, bankruptcy or the welfare system. If you owed a debt that you could not pay, one of the options was that you would then Become a slave of the person that you owed, and you would work out your debt. Or you'd become a slave if your nations were at war and your nation lost the war. Well, now what are they going to do with all the people living in the nation? Well, they put you in slavery. In fact, some people sold themselves willingly into slavery so that they would have the the safety and protection of whatever family they're with. That was first century slavery. It's different. Now, having said that, I want to lean in because you'd think, oh, perfect. Well, that's super easy. Well, now let's lean in. Even though it's different, first century slavery was still awful. So don't hear me saying today that, oh, the the slavery in the Bible, you'd sign up for that. No, you wouldn't. It's horrific. It's awful. It's a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. Men and women became the property of other men and women. It's awful. And so the question still is, well, then why didn't God condemn that slavery? Why don't we find verses in the New Testament abolishing that slavery that was going on in the Greco-Roman world? Well, the more that you read your Bible, the more you come to understand the Gospel, the more you will see that the Bible did undermine the slavery system of the ancient world. But it did so differently than perhaps the way that you want it to. The Bible undermined the ancient slavery by changing the people within the corrupt system rather than addressing the system itself. And, and perhaps you say, well, that doesn't seem right. That's why, why? You're still asking, well, why, isn't, why when I read my New Testament, isn't Paul writing in new laws for the Greco-Roman world? Because the Apostle Paul wasn't writing to the Greco-Roman lawmakers and power brokers. He was writing to the disenfranchised. He was writing to the marginalized church who were living as a fringe movement within this wider society. He was teaching them how to be salt and light within a corrupt system. For him to to write in new laws for the government would be a waste of papyrus. That's not what Paul did. He's teaching them how to live faithfully. One author writes, True, no proof text 
proof text dismantled Roman slavery with a single blow. Yet taken as a whole, the Bible decimated slavery with a thousand hits. I won't list all thousand hits, but the Bible undermined slavery by teaching that all men and women are created in the image of God and worthy of dignity and respect and honor. The Bible undermines slavery by teaching that actually in God's kingdom, the first will be last and the last will be first, and we should be servants of all. The Bible undermines slavery by teaching us that actually our diversity is beautiful and it's part of God's design, and we find unity within our diversity. Because here's the thing, the Bible is not a political manifesto. It's not an instruction manual for parliamentarians. It's the story of a sinful humanity, people like you and me, and a holy God, and a plan of redemption for people like you and me through the redemption that's ours in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's what matters to Paul. And that's his priority. And that brings us to our text this morning. Because Timothy's looking out as he preaches and he has a church that's filled with slaves. A church filled with disenfranchised, hard-done-by, oppressed people. What would Paul have young Timothy preach to that congregation? What should a pastor preach to those who are living under oppression? That's our question this morning. First, Paul tells Timothy, as you look out over this congregation of slaves, remind them to honor everyone, even their oppressors. We see this in verse 1, if you look there with me. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Which is a counterintuitive instruction. The kind of instruction that, that makes our flesh a little bit angry, if we're honest. Is Paul pandering to slave owners? Is that the case? Is he a coward? It almost sounds like it, doesn't it? Was he too cowardly to address the social injustices of his day? Was he neglecting his responsibility as a leader? Was he trying to create a state church? Or did Paul simply have his eyes fixed on Jesus? The Savior who, while they were nailing his wrists to the cross, cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Perhaps Paul was fixated on following the direction that Jesus blazed for his church when Jesus taught us, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. See, Paul had been the recipient of this radical love. Remember, Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, Paul was a terrorist. Paul was actively pursuing the followers of Jesus Christ. Hunting them down. He was holding the cloaks of those who stoned those believers to death. For most of Paul's life, he was the oppressor. Paul understood that the gospel has the power to change the heart, even of the vilest sinner. He understood that the gospel extends to those who do not deserve mercy. So he says, Timothy, when you stand up to preach, and you look out over the congregation, and they are spitting mad because they've been treated unjustly again. Here's what, you, here's what you preach, Timothy. You look out and you say, Slaves, regard your masters as worthy of honor. What an impossible command. Truly. Some of those slaves would have had miserable masters. Some of them were mistreated on a weekly basis. Was Paul oblivious? Perhaps he misspoke. Perhaps what, what's happening here is Paul is guilty of overgeneralizing. I do this all the time. That's probably what Paul's doing. Perhaps he, what he was really doing is he's referring to those masters who, who actually are worthy of honor. 
And he expected us to read into that here. Well, he doesn't give us such an escape clause, does he? There is no disclaimer. Paul says slaves are to honor their masters, period. Now, thankfully, the Apostle Peter addressed the same issue when he wrote to the church. And the Apostle Peter, as he gave this same instruction to the slaves in his church, he did provide that disclaimer. So that's good. So we can deal with his disclaimer. Except his disclaimer says the exact opposite of what we want him to say. Peter says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. And then he gives this clause, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. See, it'd be one thing for Peter and Paul to call for like half-hearted, disgruntled obedience. It'd be one thing if they said, you know, plug your nose and just run out the clock. Do what you need to do. But that's not what they call for. Paul says, regard them as worthy of honor. So like in your heart, in your mind, see them as someone who is worthy of honor. Not just do what you need to do. Man, how can they make these kinds of claims? How could they call us to do something so impossible? Because we're the followers of Jesus, and this is the Jesus way. The Bible teaches us that all men and women are created in the image of God, and therefore they're worthy of honor and dignity and respect. On page one of your Bible, we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the slaves in Ephesus needed to see their masters as made in the image of God and as worthy of honor. Now, interestingly enough, 18, 1900 years later, it's this same doctrine that would abolish the slave trade in the new world. The gospel declares the humanity of the slave and the slave master, both the oppressed and the oppressor. The gospel paves the way for the unity, the only unity that could dismantle an institution like slavery. As John Stott describes it, every human being is worthy of honor, even pagan slave owners, because they've been made in the image of God. And once we perceive the intrinsic worth of human beings by creation, and therefore recognize them as worthy of honor, all our relationships are enriched and ennobled. So let's get practical here. I'll tell you, as I read this text, I am freshly reminded, reminded that it is not the job of the under-shepherd to tell the people what they want to hear. It's just not. You get to hear what you want to hear from, from your YouTube loop. We get to hear what we want to hear from our social media echo chamber. We get to hear what we want to hear from our like-minded circle of friends. But when we come and we sit before the Word of God and we hear it's proclaimed, that, we don't get to hear what we want to hear. We, we hear what God says to us today. So my job is not to tell you what you want to hear. And if Timothy could look out at a congregation full of slaves, some of them perhaps even bearing wounds from the flogging that they received that week, if he could look out at them and he could call them to honor their oppressors, then I have no excuse to ever do any less from this pulpit. And so let's apply this. Some of you have given yourself full permission to dishonor your employer. You gossip about your employer. You slander your employer. You think he's a fool. You think she's underqualified. And you think that you're justified in that posture of dishonor that you've adopted. And you need to hear, Christian, that you are not. Now, you're not a slave. Praise God. You can quit that job. You can find a new job. But what you can't do as a follower of Jesus is you can't continue to dishonor your employer. It's wrong. 
Some of us have given ourselves permission to dishonor our political leaders. And perhaps this application feels like a hermeneutical stretch, but when Peter gave this instruction to slaves, it was intertwined with the command to show honor to the governing authorities. In 1 Peter 2.17, where he's been talking to slaves, he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now that's hard because some of you feel like you were treated like a second-class citizen. Some of you felt villainized and misrepresented and oppressed by the ones who were supposed to protect you and your family. You can't even say the name of your prime minister now without a snarky remark or at least the desire to say one. And through that example, the watching world sees that this is how Christians respond to mistreatment. We justify the dishonor and we need to know that's wrong. Others of us have given ourselves permission to dishonor those who slander us. Christians, people that we'd walked with for years, said things to us and about us publicly and privately that cut deeper than they'll ever understand. We're trying to navigate through these challenges that we've never before faced, and we're being attacked simultaneously by the brothers and sisters that we're trying to serve, and it felt unjust, and we allowed ourselves to hold grudges, we allowed ourselves to withhold honor, and that was wrong. Paul leans in, and he tells young Timothy, as you look out over those slaves, as you look out over those victims, real victims of injustice, don't tell them what they want to hear, Timothy. Tell them what they need to hear. Remind them of the Jesus way. Remind them to honor everyone, even their oppressors. We're going to move quicker now, but I wanted to sit in that for a little while. We need to hear that. Second, Paul tells Timothy as he preaches to, ministers to these who are suffering through injustice, remind them to put the gospel first, even over personal freedom. Look again at verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that, why? Why do we do this? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. The Ephesian slaves are to show honor to their master because the advance of the gospel is more important than anything else in the world. And when you give yourself permission to dishonor your master, you prove that you care more about your agenda and your comfort than you do about his eternal soul. To be clear, Paul understood that slavery was awful. He's not naive. Elsewhere, he wrote a letter to a slaveholder named Philemon. And he pressed into Philemon and he, he talked about how the gospel implications should lead Philemon to release his slave Onesimus and to recognize him as a brother. Paul understood this. In his earlier letter, letter to the church in Ephesus, this church, he wrote to the slave masters and he reminded them that God is watching the way that they treat their slaves. He warned them that one day they're going to stand before the God who is impartial, who's not going to care who was the master and who was the slave. One day they're going to stand before him. They could, should conduct themselves accordingly. And when he wrote to the Corinthians, he wrote, Were you a bondservant when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But then he leans in and says, But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Paul says, If you can get out of slavery, then you should. He's not pro-slavery. But, and this is the piece that we find offensive. As we read through the New Testament, neither can we say that Paul is is anti-slavery. Here's what I mean. Paul didn't give any of his word count to overturning political systems. Paul didn't use his life 
to try to stick it to the man. He wrote to the slaves and he wrote to the slave owners. And his primary concern for both was that they would look to Jesus and serve him with all their might. He gave himself, even to the point of death, to tell the world about the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. That was the message of Paul's life. That was the priority that dictated all of his decisions. Now, does the gospel lead to transformed living? You bet it does. And that's why when we read Paul's letters, we see that the second half of the letter always walks us through the the life implications. Now that we understand this, this is how it should change the way that we live. So yes, the gospel changes us, but notice that Paul deals with personal implications, not political implications. Because Paul knows that political change flows downstream from personal change. Paul understood that the tool with the power to change the world is not statecraft, it's the gospel. And if your pursuit of your political vision and direction and agenda hinders people from seeing and receiving the gospel that actually has the power to change everything, then you've lost the plot. In this passage, Paul is calling on these Ephesian slaves, men and women who probably spent a lot of time daydreaming about freedom and autonomy. He's calling on them to instead daydream about evangelism and mission. Because in Paul's life and ministry, the cause of Christ has priority. So as we think through this, how many of us have hardened our employers to a reception to the gospel because of the, the calloused way that we've responded? Perhaps in times when we have been truly treated with injustice. But how many times have we responded so sharply that we've hardened them to the gospel? Perhaps we've hardened our neighbors to the gospel. They catch us at a bad moment and give us grief about the grass being too long or our kids being too joyful. Or, and we respond to that with a harshness. And we make our point, but we've hardened them to the gospel. Or how many of us have hardened our community to the gospel just with the way that we've conducted ourselves over the last two and a half years? I don't care which side of the spectrum you're on. A lot of us have said and done things and carried ourselves in such a way that we have, we have put up a, a stumbling block for the reception of the gospel in our city. Paul is teaching us here that even if you have legitimately been wronged for the sake of the gospel, you can and you must show honor. Because these offenses against you are temporary. But hell is forever. Woe to us if we prove by our actions that we care more about our personal rights and freedoms than we do about the eternal salvation of our oppressors. That is not the example that Jesus set for us. So, Timothy, when you look out over that congregation and they're spitting mad about how they've been treated, remind them to put the gospel first, even above their personal freedom. And finally, Paul says, remind them to be radically selfless. Look at verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers And beloved, teach and urge these things. And here we catch a glimpse into the wildly complicated early church. Church can be complicated here. We disagree on some things sometimes. But man, imagine being in the early church. They've already got the challenges of of the Jews and the Gentiles worshiping together. We'll deal with that in our Acts series. But here you've got the challenge that in all of these churches you have slaves and you have some masters worshiping together. Have you thought about that? When you read through the New Testament and in Paul's letters, he always stops to address slaves and masters. You know why he does that? Because in the church, who's going to hear this letter, there are slaves and masters. That's complicated. 
That was a thing in the early church. You're, you're worshiping together, breaking bread together, sitting under the Word together with your brother in Christ, and then you go home and He owns you. That takes some wisdom. Now, in Paul's initial letter to the church in Ephesus, so when he's addressing the whole congregation, he wrote to both the slaves and the masters. We find that in Ephesians 6. I'm going to read verses 5-9, to where Paul writes, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free. Let's pause there. So when Paul initially wrote to these slaves, he said, as you're serving your master, remember you're actually serving Christ. And remember that that Jesus sees all of this. And one day you're going to stand before Jesus and he's going to reward you for the way you've conducted yourself. So just remember that. When you're working so hard and you feel like you're still mistreated and nobody sees and nobody cares, listen, Jesus sees, Jesus cares. Eternity is forever. This life is short. That's what he says to the slaves. But then he turns his attention in verse 9 to the masters. He says, masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there's no partiality with him. You hear that? He reminds the masters, this whole master-slave thing that's happening here on earth, that's not happening in heaven. And you'll both answer to him. So watch it. Now here, when he writes to Timothy to, to readdress this church, he only gives them instructions for the slaves. Now that could be because there were just significantly more slaves in the church. Or it could be because the masters took the lesson, but the slaves didn't. You know, Perhaps they were obstinate. Because now, now my master's a Christian, so he's going to be merciful to me, so I don't need to work hard for him anymore. I'll spend my day chit-chatting around, you know, or perhaps the slaves are frustrated because they're like, my master's a Christian. He should understand the gospel implications. That slavery should not be a thing in the church. So forget him. I'm going to do my own thing. Who knows? We don't know why it is that the slaves were rejecting this teaching. What we do know is that Paul swiftly rebukes the mindset that they have, and he tells them they've got it all backwards. They should work harder for their believing master because in doing so, they have this Blessed opportunity to to bless their brother. Now, I want to say this again because it's so simple, but it's, it's so radically opposite to how we feel. Timothy was to remind these slaves that they should actually care more about the comfort of their master than they should about their own comfort. He's telling them that it's actually a privilege to pour yourself out to make your brother's life better. And again, that sounds... Offensive? Tone deaf? Perhaps even dangerous. Paul's telling Timothy to preach this to slaves. Like, that's dangerous, Paul. Are you thinking about what you're saying? How could, possibly, how could Paul say such a thing? Well, he could say it because his priorities were shaped by Jesus. Jesus who taught us, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When you see that, you realize it's not all about you. You realize that you have a blessed opportunity to serve others. I was reflecting, and this, this is not an idea novel to me, but I, I can't remember the book I took it from. But you realize like this life is short, and we don't realize that, of course. I don't realize it. I say it, but we feel like this life is all there is. The Bible reminds us it's not. 
Eternity is all there is. This life is a speck on the radar. And you realize that the opportunity to show love and compassion to to your oppressors, the opportunity to show Christ-likeness in the face of persecution is an opportunity that you only have in this short little speck of life. When you're in eternity and glory, nobody's going to oppress you. Nobody's going to persecute you. You won't have the opportunity to show your love for Christ by responding in a Christ-like way to oppression there. That opportunity is only afforded to you here in this life. And Paul's saying, don't miss it. What a privilege it is for you to resemble Jesus in showing love and concern for people who don't treat you well. What an opportunity it is for you to resemble Jesus in laying down your life, your freedom, your pursuit for the sake of somebody else who doesn't deserve it. It's it's a blessing. You know why it's a blessing? Because, here's a question, did you deserve grace, Christian? Did you deserve it when the perfect Son of God, when Jesus was beaten and mocked and hung on a tree in your place, did you deserve it when He took all of your sin, all of your injustice, all of the terrible things that you've done to others, all the awful things that you thought no one saw, when He took all of that upon Himself and removed it from you as far as the east is from the west, did you deserve that? It was pretty scandalous, wasn't it? It was a pretty remarkable gift, wasn't it? Well now, now having seen that, having received that, having benefited from that, can you tell me again why you are giving your brother in Christ less than your best? Give them all that you've got because all that Christ had was given for you. Does your brother deserve it? Perhaps not. But neither did you. And yet Jesus served you. Oh, He served you with such an extravagant kindness. Therefore, Christian, what a blessing it is to have an opportunity to share that selfless love with a brother or sister in Christ, no less. What a privilege it is to be used by the Lord to make another person's life better because you don't just exist to make your life better. So Paul says, remind them of that, Timothy. Remind them to be radically selfless. Even when they feel hard done by. Even when they feel like they haven't gotten a fair shake in life. Even when they feel like they're always on the losing side of the deal. Always taken advantage of. Remind them to rejoice with those who rejoice. Because at the end of the day, when we stand before God... All the temporary pleasures and comforts and accolades of life will fall to the floor. They don't matter. In the grand scheme of things, your eternal joy will have nothing to do with how many toys you had in this brief life. But it will have everything to do with how you loved Christ and His church. As we conclude, this is the note that young Timothy is to ring out in his church And it's going to be awkward. They're going to want him to wage war with the corrupt system, but instead he is to wage war with their grumbling attitude. They're going to want him to cry out for freedom like William Wallace, and instead he's to call them to submit out of love for their oppressors. They're going to want him to rebuke the wealthy and the powerful for being part of the problem, and instead he is actually to rebuke them for not desiring the best for their brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's why we read the whole Bible. Because the sermon that we want is rarely the sermon that we need. But Paul knows that comfort is good. Freedom is good. Fairness is good. But if Paul had no comfort and no freedom 
and no fairness, he would still have more than enough because Paul has Jesus. And Timothy has Jesus. And these Ephesian slaves have Jesus. And these brothers and sisters here at Redeemer City Church have Jesus. Even if they have a bad boss, they have Christ. Even if they've got a bad politician, they have Christ. They have all that they need. So if God calls you to forego comfort or freedom or fairness so that people who oppress you might come to have Jesus themselves, will you pay that price? That's Paul's heart cry. Is it yours? Is it mine? Is it the heart cry of this church? Oh, that God would grant us hearts and minds to embrace the Jesus way. And can I say, praise God that there is grace and forgiveness for the times that we've fallen woefully short. And to that end, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that you address us in every area of life. Lord, you, you address each of the aspects of our heart, things that we're not inclined to look at, things that we're inclined to justify. Yet when we stand before your word, your spirit exposes things that need to change. So God, I pray that as your word, if it has gone forth faithfully, that your spirit would just apply your truth. Lord, all of my thoughts, all my opinions, once again, God, I just pray that they fall to the floor. My, my thoughts and my opinions mean nothing, but your word, Lord, is life. And Lord, we want to follow your way. Lord, we want to be used by you. And Lord, actually, part of the problem is that we don't always want to be used by you. We want to be used our way. We want to be used according to the plan that we have But as we see in the Bible, oftentimes your plan for how you're going to use your people is not the plan that they would have chosen. I can think of a lot of things that I wouldn't have chosen for myself over, just let's say, the last two and a half years. And yet, Lord, help me, help us to walk in whatever you have for us with faithfulness and joy, joy unspeakable, full of glory. Lord, I pray that we would be salt and light wherever you put us. Lord, if you turn up the temperature in our culture and we face oppression, I pray that we would face it with with joy. Lord, as if we are mistreated by our employers, would we face it with joy? If we're mistreated by our politicians, would we face it with joy by our brothers and sisters in Christ? God, we just, we need your help. We want to be used by you. We have received this amazing grace. Lord, we sing about it, and yet I I would say on behalf of every one of us here, we have not even come close to understanding the depth of the extravagance of grace. And what we need is not a better resolve to work harder. What we need is softer hearts and open eyes to see the gospel of Jesus Christ and to experience that transformation in our lives. So Lord, help us to understand grace today. Help us to understand the love of God. There are people in this room who perhaps have never seen your grace afforded to them in Christ. God, I just pray that by the power of your Spirit, in Jesus' name, right now, you would open their eyes to see that there is a love that washes over all of their sin. There is a love that has taken everything that should separate you from them and removed it as far as the east is from the west. I pray that they would look to Christ on the cross and they would see a holy God demonstrating his love for a sinful people and that they would look in faith today. And Lord, I pray for all the believers who have looked in faith and yet have shifted our eyes to the left or to the right. Lord, help us to see Christ and let that shape everything about our lives, everything about our response, and everything about this church. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?